Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. If you open Dustin Parsons' new book, you'll find maps, figures, footprints, a floor plan, silhouettes of roadside birds, charts of riverbed topography, origami directions for an owl in 26 folds, and an anatomized dog. What might surprise you, that is, what might surprise you in addition to finding all of these illustrations in a single book? is that Parsons uses them to illustrate his experience of fatherhood. Not only that of being a father to two sons, but also of being the son of a father who used similar illustrations in his own work as an oil field mechanic, a welder, an auto mechanic, a woodworker, and a host of other trades. It's called Exploded View, Essays on Fatherhood with Diagrams. From this fascinating view Parsons gives us a highly unusual and highly moving memoir about what it means to be a father. He writes with the precision of an engineer and the lyrical sensibility of a poet. And this combination marks his keen viewpoint, one that allows him to bring remarkable precision to the messy emotions and dense experience of fatherhood. Dustin Parsons, welcome to the New Book Network. Hi, how's it going, Eric? It's going very well. Thanks for talking with us today. Of course. Well, so you've got this new book out, Exploded View, Essays on Fatherhood with Diagrams, right? And, um, you know, the first thing to say is when you encounter this book, it's just so beautiful. Um, And as you begin to look at it, you think about the cut. It's this perfect square. It fits in the hand quite wonderfully. Um, And as I was reading the book... I suddenly realized that, in essence, what I'm holding is a manual. One of the brilliant things that um, University of Georgia Press did was suggest to me some ways that we could make the form or the, the, uh, the object itself feel relevant to the content. And um, Aaron Kirk knew and uh, John Davies and a handful of other people there were really instrumental in uh, telling me that a square object would both solve some problems that they had with uh, images that would have to be uh, in the text, uh, but also make it a reflection of some of the things I'm talking about, like uh, pouring over my dad's um, exploded view manuals in his shop, or uh, thinking of this as a text full of other texts. And, And that was really uh, a revelation to me, but it's a revelation that didn't come to me by myself. It came to me through collaboration when the book was being made. And so uh, I've told people this before, but uh, the object is so much different than the manuscript. And I didn't have any idea that that would be the case when I was writing a book. I thought that a writer sits in a room alone and does that. And, and of course, writers do a lot of that. Uh, but some of the ways that a book comes off to its audience have everything to do with how the 
production team and the editors uh, helped to shape it for the public. And I, 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 it was just something I really wasn't at all prepared for, uh, but so happy that it happened and that it went well. I think that's true. I think that that as writers, we think about the book as kind of this neutral vessel, right? Out it comes. Um, there is this subgenre of books called the artist book, right? That artists put together and craft and make sure that the entire object of art is part of the experience. And um, I think one of the beautiful things about this book is that it does have that feel, that it's something... Um, that you're holding it, the heft of it matters. And I think as we get into the content, we'll see how that's all the more relevant and resonant. But so, so tell us about this title exploded view. I think everybody's going to recognize it once you describe it, but we might not all know the technical term. Right. So uh, exploded view is uh, literally a style of diagram that mechanics and engineers use to simultaneously view a, a an image of a thing, but also its constituent parts for labeling for parts, for construction and deconstruction, for reproduction. And all of those uses of the exploded view diagram were relevant to essays and especially to looking back on one's history. You are literally deconstructing what you've done before. And the essayist, I think, is doing their most important work when they take those deconstructions, those memories, those ideas that have happened before and trying to reposition them in the present. How did, how and why does it matter now? Uh, memoirs have probably known this forever. So of uh, personal essayists uh, that if you can't somehow show your audience the parts and the whole, then you're going to have a hard time getting them to empathize or understand what you've been through or what you believe or how you think through a subject or an idea. And um, so for me, it was a perfect title because it referenced something that I was fascinated with as a kid, but it also references a style and a mode of um, production and of reproduction and rethinking it. It references memory in a lot of ways, in a technical way. So for me, it was the perfect title. Uh, and especially um, when a lot of the essays were literally in that style of diagram with the deconstructed mode, you can see the object being torn apart as though it were floating in air. There's just something um, that I, I, we think of the memory as romantic but there's also something technical about memory that I was really interested in when, uh, when I would use those diagrams. I, I think that the, you know, the, the diagrams, they look very analytic, right? Something an engineer would approach and work with. And you're doing a, a really nice job of giving us a way to understand how that can become a, a kind of illuminating metaphor for thinking about the process of memory, you know, not as these clouds of the past that float up and strike us suddenly, but as having these kinds of constituent parts and functions. Um, could, could you maybe walk us a, a little bit more closely through the, the subtitle, right? So what would an exploded view of fatherhood look like or feel like or, or that encounter? Right. You, um, 
it, it looks like uh, an examination of all of its parts, which include being a son to somebody I considered a role model to being a grandson that I considered to be uh, a role model to, um, to being a father myself. I think those things are maybe on the surface of the, the, the um, subtitle. Um, but also the things that come along with adulting in general. I know uh, I just did an interview where um, Steve Allman said he hates that word, uh, adulting. And I, I, I do appreciate and understand that. Uh, but there's sometimes no other real way to talk about this weird feeling at one point of just knowing you're not a kid anymore. And it happens sometimes before. Um, it happens sometimes before you have kids, but um, having kids changes it one step further. Uh, so in, in some ways, exploding fatherhood means exploding what it means to have grown up and to have had jobs and to have um, left home and stopped being a uh, in-home son and starting to become a partner to someone and starting to become a father to someone. Um, if I take enough small pieces of all of those things, I've done the same thing that these diagrams do, which is to show you little pieces of the whole one at a time and knowing that they can be reassembled into something that resembles a, a life. I think that's that's beautifully put, and it um, it makes me want to ask you if you could just read us one, so we could hear what that sounds like um, sure. firsthand. Yeah, sure. of course. And I, I think it, maybe it's relevant to start with um, the title essay, uh, "Exploded View." If you were look, if you were looking at this in the book, you'd see uh, one of these kind of classic exploded diagrams of a compass. It was an old aeronautic compass. Uh, I, in tracking down the rights to it, because I had to get the rights for um, all the images that I used in the book, I talked to the guy who originally drafted the piece, who worked for a company that's now defunct, uh, which means that really I just had to get his permission. Uh, and he said, he said not only uh, yes, of course, but he when I sent him the essay that accompanied the image, he said, that is absolutely not what I expected. <laughs> he said he thought he was going to be writing an essay about what the image looked like or how it was constructed or maybe a history of it. Uh, and so when he got this essay about my life, <laughs> he, he kind of, it took him aback a little bit, but he said, then I completely understood why they're matched together. I don't know that I've made all the connections, but at least I get that you're trying to do something new with them. And that was like the best compliment uh, I probably ever got from a non-writer about, about the book uh, was somebody saying, I don't get it, but I totally get it. And that made me, that made my day. So this is exploded view. It's when I get lost and the best way through is somehow in the details. It happened on a bike one afternoon, neighborhoods gave way to country and all I could find was graveyards, three country plots down one road, and now the deceased were markers. It was, comfort it, was, it was a comfort. 
I sat on a bench where mourners rested before me, and a cross-section of humanity rested with me, an exploded view of the narrow town from which they died away. Lay every dead person head to foot, and the distance would extend to any god that has ever been prayed to. Suddenly the compass righted itself in my head, and I found home. Or when my son disappeared one afternoon as I, was wor- as I worked in the garden, I'd pulled Pacassandra and Ivy from the beds and foundation of our house, wads of it in my hands, pulling back like, a ro- ro- like I rode a row machine, my back curled and straight, and then he was gone, and that street terror sound of locking brakes is all that can fill your ears. I ran the house twice, shouting the boy's name, and then I could see the yard as though it were a machine reduced to its constituent parts. Thickets spread apart and exposed, the air between their branches, and the decking inhaled, the spaces parting. Feral can be a temporary condition. I found him in our shed, and didn't shout as I might another day. I put the dirt and green detritus of Pacassandra in his hair. It was how I could bring him back to me and put the world back together. So I want to ask you a couple questions about this piece. And, and the first, um, I just want to give readers a sense of what they would have been looking for on the looking at on the page, right? There's a series of numbers that run down that we didn't hear. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. They correspond to the parts numbers that are in the in the piece. And this happens a few times in the book where uh, the lines have been divided. I, I resist saying that they're line breaks because I don't think and I don't treat it as though it were a poem, but they are individually enumerated down the page to correspond to the image itself. But instead of giving us a view of the, um, a description of the image, it's giving us a description of what the image does to me and for me as I'm thinking about these memories and so the compass seemed to be functioning as a metaphor, but it's individual pieces, uh, some of which are really intricate and really small, and some of which are really big. Um, I tried to manipulate so that they, the lines would feel something like they belonged to that particular small image. That's great. So, so why not read the, the numbers? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious because on the page it would be part of the experience, right? Yeah, you totally I got me. I cannot see them. <laughs> you totally got me. Um, maybe maybe it's because it belongs to the image in some ways, and when I read it out loud, I don't get those images in front of people. Say, you know, on a on a podcast like this, or even when I'm doing a reading and they don't have like a projector behind me. There are times when uh, I'm allowed that, and and I'll sometimes read the numbers or the part letters. Uh, that go along with the lines. But by and large, when I'm reading it to an audience who can't see the image, the numbers don't quite translate maybe. Uh, And so it makes it a little bit more difficult to use them. But, you know, now that you say it, I think it would have also broken up the line a little bit in a way that I didn't like. It sounds a little more like a cohesive piece when you read it without the numbers. And I think um, maybe that's what, sometimes I'm hungry for is to hear it as a, as a whole narrative. Yeah. I, I think, um, as someone who, you know, 
grew up in 80s and 90s rock, I'm very comfortable with this idea that there's no final version, that there are remixes and that there are covers and there's a performance version and a page version and maybe a performance version where there is a projector and all of them can happily coexist and uh, you don't have to choose and say that there's some final perfect version from which everything's a falling off. And I want to address the listener who's like, Ultimately, what are you doing talking about numbers when we just heard this beautiful piece, <laughs> right? So, so tell me a little bit about that move. Well, but but it's a part of it's a part of the piece, you know. It's a part of the piece. It's just hard to it's hard to use them in a form that doesn't um, reference its referent. You know, I get so. that. I get that. So, so I could imagine a listener saying, okay, that was b- beautiful, this movement. But what I'm left with is just having heard it and not seen it on the page is we opened with this moment of being lost by a graveyard and we closed with this moment of the essayist losing and finding his son. And, and it turns very quickly. You're suddenly from one moment to the next can you tell us about the architecture of, of the essay and that movement? Yeah, it was a much longer essay. Um, I mean, I think all writers experience that. They write 20 pages and they end up with five, uh, if, if I guess if they're lucky. Uh, this one was a maybe four or five page essay, uh, maybe a thousand words, maybe 1200 words. And it I could like a lot of the essays that ended up being paired with diagrams, I couldn't find the right form for it. I I knew that somehow being lost was important. And I knew that um, having the first part be in the graveyard and the second part being worried about my son and what's happening would match together really well. Uh, even though it scared the hell out of me when it happened, I, I didn't know what the glue was, or or I I guess I couldn't make the glue work uh, for that essay until I found the image and realized that it was just too long. And that's not something I think most people uh, really come to realize that it's too long because it's not able to hang together, but making it shorter actually gave it legs. It gave it uh, a connective tissue between those two events and like I said, that doesn't happen very often to me. Most of the time, in order to make smoother transitions and make it feel like they're pieces that belong together, I assume it takes more. And in this case, it was it was just the opposite for me. Well, and on the surface, it's very surprising what would be the piece that would connect it, right? So if I were going to paraphrase you, I'd say something like, there are these two memories that have maybe this theme of being lost together, but the moment you knew they would come together is when you found a diagram of a compass. <laughs> that was the connective tissue that brought it together. That was the thing. So, so as a working artist, how do you feel your way through that? Because I, I can't imagine right, writing a, a writing handbook that says, when you have an essay that seems too long and might have too many constituent parts, go looking for open sourced or relatively open source diagrams that will somehow give you a focus and allow you to figure out how to bring it. You know, it's just, it's part of the magic of the book is that these different kinds of pieces are working together to create a synthetic whole, but the working process behind that, how how did you know that this is the, the diagrams, what ties these two moments together that I guess have a, have a, 
an oblique relationship to a compass. Yeah. I, oh gosh, I would never give anybody the advice. Hey, when you get stuck, go to the New York Library public domain page and just look through image. I'd never do that to somebody. It was so uh, so painful in some ways. Um, the process for me started with um, a, an essay in here called Drop Off, which was a response to Sandy Hook. It was uh, one of those moments where I, I was at a loss for what to say, and it happened on my birthday. So it was also this mixture of, you know, this is, this is a day I was supposed to celebrate, but it feels wrong to do that. Um, and so I wrote about it, you know, the next day or the next several days, because it was, you know, right at the end of um, the fall and, and going into winter break for my sons. Um, it, it was a weird time in schools. It was um, a time where suddenly posted armed guards would be at the doors. It was a time where parents' um, freedoms to accompany their kids into school was restricted. We lived at the time in a, in a relatively small Western New York town uh, where I think I would say I knew everybody, but I knew a good percentage of the people that I walked in with or walked out with. Uh, and yet that trust, which was there just a, a few weeks earlier was suddenly gone. And it was, it was so difficult to, to deal with, you know, my son's going off into a school and we have these horrid images of what had happened um, that I wanted to write about it. And everything just felt too much. It felt too difficult. And one day on the news, I saw the, the exploded view diagram of the gun that one that the guy had used. And I realized that was the, that was for me, the problem is as I was imagining this image and I wasn't able to translate that. And so I decided I would at least put the image in front of me and it ended up becoming more and more important to the essay to the point where I couldn't extricate it from the essay. And that really started me on the path of, of doing it. After that, the technique really became looking at mo moments in my life and, and, uh, either searching for an image that might help me pull them together, or there were a few times where I really was kind of just trolling around in the public domain image area, and I'd see something cool, and it would remind me of uh, something that I was really interested in. Um, some of the many of those essays didn't even make it into the book, and some of them were were very were, were quite bad, but uh, a few of them, the magic would happen where you would get this beautiful fluid connection between what was being written and what was being uh, imaged on the, on the page. And it didn't feel false. And it also didn't feel too easy where, um, you know, the image is about a dog and it, the essay was about my dog. It didn't, um, it didn't relate to them one-to-one. -one. It felt more like they were in conversation with one another uh, than it did. One was explaining the other. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. Um, I think illustration is the the most reductive relationship between text and image. And when the text and image are each doing something different, um, but somehow still cohesive or talking to one another, you get an experience that is much richer and more complex. 
Right. You know, it was funny because my, my sons have been looking at comics recently. They might, they're both incredible artists. They can already do at eight and 11, what I can't do at 45. You know, I mean, they're just, they're really talented. Uh, but they pulled two books off the shelf that struck me as entirely different in their relationship between text and image. One of them was um, like Garfield or Peanuts, where the characters are talking and what they're saying is the text below. Calvin and Hobbes kind of the same way in, in some ways. And it's not any less brilliant for that. But then my eldest also grabbed a book of The Far Side, where something on this on the the image would be ironic to the text, or uh, you would have to do a lot of uh, mental legwork to get from the text to the image or the image to the text. And he had a hard time with it at first because they don't, they're not one-to-one relationships all the time. Um, and once he started to figure out how that worked, it opened up a whole new world for him. And that was the, the kind of the difference for me too, uh, thinking about these images not as uh, accompaniments, but as part of the the constructing of this moment, where they're not one dependent on another to be described, but instead one dependent on the other for meaning. That I, I think I can feel that pressure in the pieces. Um, and it, it makes me want to ask, so so in the essay that you mentioned, Drop Off, which is the one that has the pistol, um, the way you explained it to us that, that you were thinking about this on the day that Sandy Hook happened, which has also happened to be your birthday, it's an essay that's haunted by a lot that is not in it, but is evoked by it. And I think the, the essay on the Cardinal... Um, how to make a cardinal in five easy steps, right? This is about you being a father of biracial children and about white privilege and about perception and ease, um, you know, in identity and things like that. And it's not in the essay, but the essay is, is charged with it. Could you, could you talk about that effect? Yeah, I, I, it might be different for every one of the essays. Um, for Drop Off, it was more uh, a sense of taking some of the terminology that I thought was um, so inextricably linked to guns themselves and reowning it or you know, reprioritizing it or reclaiming it and, and doing something new with it. So I used rifling in a different way. I used trigger in what I hope is a different way, I took those the the summary of the parts and tried to reassemble them into something that would help articulate my fears. Uh, for the cardinal essay, it was it was slightly different. I purposely tried to avoid the outward statement white privilege, but in talking about color, that amorphous word. I don't think there's anybody who's confused after the first step about what I mean. And yet it's funny that we don't have to say it. We all understand how the, how the idea of color functions in America. It's just that it's handiness as a metaphor can be useful to 
explain how we move around in the world, what, is, what it is exactly that um, we have that other people don't, how we're privileged in a way that other people aren't. And my fear, the, the fear I was articulating is that I'm not going to be an effective father for these two boys, maybe in part because they already know things I don't about literal color and about race, but also that, um, that I could never really understand it. And so how can I help them if I don't have a solution or an answer? And that ended up being the answer is that um, sometimes I just have to be able to admit that I don't have it. And that, that, was, that was also a really difficult um, essay to write, and it was a difficult essay to um, make subtle yeah it's a it's a powerful essay and i think um i think it it brings up even as you're articulating your experience of it one of the the challenges of writing about fatherhood but also one of the the sources of power for the book which is there are a lot of received ideas about what it means to be a father fathers know right um fathers don't fear father's love but in a steely cold way you know all these things and and this is a book that's filled with emotion um some of them difficult some of them quite beautiful and and poignant um can you did did you face any of these sort of commonplaces or expectations about the nature of fatherhood as you were moving into the the essays um you know i know we all face them in our lived experience but then there are also certain tropes that that come back again and again you know essays on fatherhood and things like that and so i'm wondering if as a writer and an artist you found yourself coming up against historical ways of articulating ideas about fatherhood emotions about fatherhood that were challenging yeah, I mean, um, there was, and I don't know who said it. I, I've heard it attributed to several people, but um, the one f- fairly famous, clearly like unaware of his own privilege writer said, "Every child you have is a book you don't write," and that really struck me as arrogant in one way, but also uh, limiting and. I never really completely understood why someone would feel that way. Um, they, there's a there's a sense to me that every time I ran up against what it was to be a father, the 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 big issue always ended up being, am I am I coming off as a competent father, or am I coming off as a a father who um, is pretending to be competent. <laughs> you know, um, I could fashion these essays any way I want. I can make the truth sound pretty great. But the fact is that oftentimes I was making a lot of mistakes. And the best grace I could hope for was to learn from them. Um, it was one of the other essays I, was, I, I might read for you is um, Solomon Grundy Says Goodnight. Uh, It's an essay that requires me to do a Solomon Grundy voice. Um, But it also um, has a a last line that still haunts me that I wrote it. Um, And it was a difficult thing for me to, to, um, to, to leave in the book because it 
sounds like I'm unappreciative or ungrateful or, uh, and, and it's not that at all. It's just that in that moment, I didn't think I could bear the weight of, um, their loyalty to me and their admiration of me. Um, it was, it was, um, it was a scary moment, even though there's really nothing scary about your kids loving you. Um, but I think that in some ways there is something really scary about that. You, you have to absolutely have to read it. It's, I love that essay and I love the end. Yeah. All right. Um, so forgive me for, if you want a reference to the voice I'm doing, it's from, it's the, Super Friends, Solomon Grundy from the old TV show. So I'm just I'm going to go ahead and blame it on somebody else that I'm trying to imitate. Uh, this is uh, Solomon Grundy says goodnight. My sons play a new game, holding on to my legs, standing on my feet as I lumber them to bed. My legs are stiff, and I am now Solomon Grundy, the comic book monster. They delight in monsters and insist on a ride to the bathroom, to the bedroom, to the kitchen for a drink. They are blindly confident in me. They do not know how little balance I have. Solomon Grundy is my youngest son's favorite monster, he who was brought back to the living by a swamp. I do his voice from the cartoon, a little deep Louisiana mixed with an unmodulated tenor, and he squeals with delight. I walk like him, the boys attached, my hands pretending to tickle but actually holding them, my palms able to cup nearly the entirety of their backs. What my boys don't know is there are real monsters out there that don't lumber slowly. They have not come back from the dead. Bella Lugosi inadvertently created Frankenstein's monster's iconic walk when filmmakers had to fix the problem of his accent, essentially eliminating all his speaking parts. In one of those speaking parts, he explains through monologue that in a previous movie, the monster has lost his sight, and as a result, he walked in a shuffle, his arms forward. Zombies, mummies, the resurrected dead of this world, they are discovering, all carry this same gait. They all stumble slowly with weak legs and suspect balance. They often use their arms forward to keep themselves upright. They seem to be longing, reaching infinitely. They don't have language. Modern monsters brought back from the dead no longer walk that way because of blindness. They walk that way because they carry an immense weight on their backs, their chests, their stiff, unbending legs. They carry it until they feel like they might not be able to carry it any longer. Then they carry it some more. Solomon Grundy says goodnight to the little boys, I say. I deposit them in bed. Funny, they don't have nightmares. They keep asking for more, but I bend from the knees to kiss them goodnight. There is no greater joy than their laughter before bed, and every night I realize I can shoulder it no longer. So could you tell us a little bit about how that one came together? You know, the, the scene with your children is moving and poignant and, and touching. I was surprised the first time I read it that suddenly there we are with Bella Lugosi. Um, so, so why does he, you know, I think retrospectively it's easy to see, but how did you bring him on stage? How did you, you figure out that he needed to be the one that was in there? That Solomon, Solomon Grundy or Bella Lugosi or both, I guess. 
um, Bella Lugosi. Bella, Bella Lugosi, or or I could I can say it in a more sophisticated way, right? That that you you move to this archetypical moment of American culture in which we get a you know the the trope of the lumbering monster. Um, so you're using research and personal history, but I, I'm just curious about as a working artist how that piece that that essay came together. So I was I was writing something that I thought was funny and. Uh, you know, when one of my sons would be on the wrong leg on, on my bad knee, uh, you know, there was a real distinct possibility I could completely fall over and hurt everybody. Uh, so I thought it was funny at first. And then I started doing some research about why monsters walk that way. And suddenly it realized it wasn't really that funny at all. There was something really um, uh, sad and, and mystical that I'd never heard before about why Frankenstein walked that way, why um, Solomon Grundy seems to walk that way in the, um, in the live action, or not the live action, but the, uh, the cartoons that we see him in. Um, and suddenly, it, the whole thing wasn't funny anymore. Suddenly, I was the monster. And it was a moment where I had to juxtapose being somebody that they were looking up to and they wanted to ride from and, and were confident in. And my own perception of that moment, which is I'm not comfortable at all. Uh, I'm worried that my knees are going to give out. I'm worried that I'm going to drop my kids. Um, and that I, I, you know, every moment that I was doing it, I thought I can't take another step. If I do, I'm going to hurt somebody. And yet I just kept doing it. Um, and that's when the essay really came together for me. It was always this one as opposed to the other one. This one was always a short piece. Um, I always felt like I understood where the balance of it was, but I never understood what the tone was until I started doing that research on those monsters. And it's funny. I did it. I did the research just to get a better sense of what the walk looked like and ended up stumbling on this information I would never have expected, but that ended up being everything for the essay. It's fascinating how that can happen and how it creates this, this situation where material that you initially think, oh, it's going to be comic. And then you kind of keep turning it over and you're like, there's a, there's a deep tragic element to this. And then sometimes you're trying to write about something that's, that's hefty and weighted and full of gravitas and you start turning it over and you're like, this is a sort of darkly hilarious. And I don't know um, if that's something about the nature of human experience that every time you start to push in one direction, something rears in its opposite. Um, but I think uh, your your voice brought it all together. So I appreciate you going for it right there uh, and doing Solomon Grundy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to... You know, that's a, that's a funny thing. Please go ahead. I missed that. No, no, no. I just thought it was a funny thing that I've never read that before out loud. Uh, to an audience because I've always been afraid of the, of the voice. Like what if I get it wrong or what if I, you know, that's the time when I choose to get a frog in my throat, who knows what's going to happen. But anyway, that's true. And most of those cartoon characters, I'm sure that there's an essay to read on the history and nature of cartoon voices um, that my guesses would surprise us. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the, the expectations or, or common associations with the personal essay is that they're, they're centered in the self. The self is the engine out of which they come and the primary material. Um, 
you know, that, that they're personal. Um, I occasionally come across people that, you know, they'll find out that I write personal essays and they'll say, oh, you know, I could, I could never spend so much time on me like that. I could never focus. I feel slightly indicted. Um, but, um, you know, we know that that's not the case, that, that essays can reach outward, that they can embrace things that aren't the self, that they can fold in and be inclusive. And I think one of the, the beautiful gestures in yours is there is this series of essays called Stories I've Been Told that begins when I asked so-and-so to tell me a story. This person told me that one. Can you tell us a little bit about what's behind that? I think it's a beautiful gesture just to to bring in others' stories as part of the the story that you're telling about yourself. Um, so like this was this these essays, the stories I've been told, were helping me to um, kind of take into account these stories that people would tell me when they realized I was a writer. Um, everybody says, oh, you should write about this or you should write about that. And instead of doing the polite, yeah, sure, I should, I actually started to jot them down. There weren't very many that worked very well. The only two of them made it into the book. Um, one of them is about my grandfather, and so it wasn't necessarily one that was unsolicited. But uh, another one was from a student, and she had at one point just said, you can use it. I, I can't write about that. And there was something heartbreaking about her insistence that writing about her father would have been a real problem. Um, so it felt to me like including them as though they were part of some bigger project that was excerpted into my book uh, felt kind of right. Uh, they're, they're pieces. They're not a whole. And they're little snapshot moments that help me uh, integrate a story that I've been told with the ways in which I experienced it. Um, so the, that was a, a, an interesting th- experiment for me in the essay where you were just talking about how the personal essay um, ends up becoming about the self, but uh, it differentiates itself from the memoir in that it doesn't navel gaze. It doesn't take into account, here's what those things, those moments meant to me. Instead, the personal essay says, this is the way I think about these things that are external to me. And so in that way, it's still personal, at least in my view, in the way that I treat it. Um, I treat the personal essay as a memoir where I don't self-reflect. You know, I, I, I'm thinking about an idea like monsters or like fire. And then it has everything to do with what I think about those things, but it's not going to primarily rely on my um, constant thought about myself and the events of my life. It's going to think about the intellectual way that I wind my way through that particular problem um, or that particular subject. So those were, those were some of the reasons why uh, I brought some of those um, portions of other projects into the book. Those are, are, that's a nice keen distinction between the memoir and the personal essay. A personal essay is a memoir without self-reflection. Um, well, so yeah, well, or or it just it, it's not primarily deals with yeah. self reflection, right? It just doesn't uh, it doesn't focus on the self exclusively uh, in a way that the personal essay uh, can just let that go, you know. The the memoir is often interested in how the self became the self, the one you you're, you got, you know, in your jeans and t shirt. Um, so I think that's a nice way to to think about how the genres move and what they're interested in doing and how they build. Uh, well, so you're still a father. 
still a husband. The book is finished. What are you working on now? So the uh, the thing, the project that I'm working on right now is a book about birds, but it's not about the physical thing, or it's not always about the physical thing. It's about how we use them as symbols in uh, American culture. So there's a chapter or there's a projected chapter on the national symbol, right? The eagle and why it came about and how it functions. And there's all these cool little stories about um, Benjamin Franklin and uh, people who wanted uh, different uh, animals to represent our our, uh, national interest. Uh, There's a chapter on state birds. There's a chapter on um, the canary in the coal mine and why that's such an interesting metaphor and how it functions. Um, so it's, it's, a it's a kind of a, a long study. I don't know how long it'll end up being, but, uh, a long study of how we use birds as symbols, how we use them as, um, uh, emblems, how we use them as, uh, different elements of our culture, representative elements of our culture. That sounds great. It also sounds like a natural progression. This book ends with ducks and cardinals and, The next book will start with a whole different approach to the same winged creatures. (laughs) Dustin Parsons, thank you for your time, and thanks for being on the New Books Network. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Dustin Parsons, author of Exploded View, Essays on Fatherhood with Diagrams, here on the New Books Network.